You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Following your passion doesn't necessarily make you happy, but doing what you're good at does make you enjoy your job. So when you do things that you are good at, you feel better. When you try to do things that you, you love but aren't good at, that doesn't often work out as well. That was Eric Barker, and this is episode 185 of the Osher Ginsburg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you for being here. This is episode 185 of the show with author, writer, screenwriter, blogger, Eric Barker. You can find him on Twitter at Baka Desuyo, B-A-K-A-D-E-S-U-Y-O, B-A-K-A-D-E-S-U-Y-O. Find him on Twitter there. That's also his blog, bakadesuyo.com. Thank you so much to everybody who's new. Welcome. If this is your first show, I'm grateful you're here. I'm Osher, a TV and radio kind of guy. I work down in Australia, and each week I have a conversation with someone that I think will bring a value to you, to me, to all of us, hopefully make the world a slightly better place to be in. And goodness knows we all need the world to be a slightly better place to be in at the moment, no matter where on this fine planet you happen to be. Thanks to everybody that sent me a podsy pic in this week, which is a picture of what you're looking at exactly while you're listening to this right very now. So uh, with the phone you're listening to this on, whip it out of wherever it's currently hiding. Just whip it out and take a photo. You can send it to me, send Osher email at gmail.com or you can tag me on Twitter or Instagram or wherever you choose to tag me. But it's really interesting um, finding out more about you who listen. I mean, I'm sure if you follow me on Instagram or Twitter or, or Facebook or wherever it happens to be, I tend to post the same thing everywhere. So wherever your, whatever your weapon of choice is there, you get a chance to see my life. It's kind of fun to see your life, you know, see what you're doing. Got some great ones this week. Um, 
again, I never, I never assume, unless I'm in the delivering room watching the baby crowning, I never assume, but I, I'm pretty sure I got a podsy from a rather pregnant lady this week. If I didn't, I'm sorry, but if I did, congratulations. Thanks for the picture. That's really sweet. Um, I hope you're good. I'm up in Brisbane. I'm sorry, I'm recording this on my phone again, but at least this time I'm not behind the wheel of a car. I'm sitting in my um, brother and sister-in-law's backyard in the beautiful outer suburbs of, of Brisbane or the outer suburbs of Ipswich. We're, we're somewhere between the two up here in beautiful Kimura and I'm surrounded by seven different types of palm trees, rainbow lorikeets, magpies that you can hear in the background and a grapefruit tree. So it's all quite lovely. Um, it's been a big week for, for myself. I, I got my hearing aids repaired. Uh, it's of no consequence to you. You can hear me fine. But it's nice to have my S's back. Uh, but it is, can be overwhelming having all that extra information piling into my brain, all that extra sonic information trying to get processed by my speech centres. It's, uh, it's big, but um, it's nice. Sorry for the, uh, the short intro. I should, I normally go on a lot longer than I will today, but uh, it's a bit of a long story. I'll, um, there's a lot going on. Hopefully I'll tell you about it when the time is right. Thanks to everybody that supports the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash osher is where you can support the show for as little as five bucks a month. You can make sure this show gets to air. Help me pay Andy Ma, my producer, and Haley Van Spanje, my production coordinator, and help me give money to them. And for return, what you get is not only the warm feeling in your belly that you help this show come to air each week, but you also um, get exclusive episodes of the show. Uh, they include... Guests such as Maz Compton, Ash London, James Matheson, Cindy Gallup. And if you uh, look in your inbox at the moment, you'll find an exclusive episode from Quentin Kennehan there. So uh, for as little as five bucks a month, you can have access to those episodes and access to a feeling of happiness in your heart to help me out. That's at patreon.com slash osher, O-S-H-E-R. So I should go quickly uh, get into it. Let me tell you about my guest today. Eric Barker is a screenwriter, a blogger, and an author from Los Angeles, California. His successful blog is at bakadesuyo.com, B-A-K-A-D-E-S-U-Y-O dot com which is also his twitter handle eric actually uh, he reached out to me and if I, he asked if he could come on to talk about his latest book barking up the wrong tree the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong uh, he's a really fascinating guy we spoke last week over skype and he offered a real insight into uh, a couple of nuggets of, of scientifically based wisdom that will hopefully help you find success either in your own personal venture uh, your own business or your home life or your family life or not even the work you're doing for someone else's business. Um, either way, the thing I really enjoy about Eric's uh, approach is that his, his work seems to be rooted in finding happiness as a part of success rather than collecting money as a part of success. And we go deep into that which I'm uh, grateful for. He's a great guy. I'm stoked he had time to chat with me. If you dig it, make sure you reach out to him. Tell him that you heard it here. Or subscribe to his mailing list. Look at his blog. He posts all the time. It's a fascinating guy. I hope you enjoy this chat with Eric Barker. Hey, Eric. How are you, man? Pretty good. Pretty good. It's good to talk to you, man. And you. Good to talk to you, too. Where, where in the world do we find you today? I'm in Los Angeles, California. Beautiful LA. So what is, it's five o'clock there? 
7 p.m. 7 p.m. Sorry, I lived I lived there for a, a while. It was either five hours or seven hours. I couldn't <laughs> I, I couldn't uh, couldn't figure it out. Well, I'm grateful that we could uh, I'm grateful we could we could talk today, even if it is over Skype. And thanks for reaching out to me, man. Because uh, oh, I'm excited, dude. I'm 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 stoked because yeah, uh, the kind of stuff that you're writing about um, is definitely something that I'm very interested in. But I think it's also uh, a lot of people don't realize they're interested in it because they are constantly uh, double tapping Instagram inspirational shit and not kind of wondering <laughs> if it's gonna. Y- yeah, you laugh. So we're gonna have to get stuck into it. So uh, the book's called Barking Up the Wrong Tree: The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success Is Mostly Wrong. Now. Why did you want to write a book about success in the first place, Eric? Um, I just, I've had a very unconventional career. Yeah. And I just remember hearing all those maxims of, you know, nice guys finish last. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And, and like, you know, it's like they're pithy, they're easy to say, but, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time dispelling myths on my blog and looking at the research and trying to get, you know, as close as we can to some legit answers. And it just seemed like a, a nice big sacred cow, juicy target. Because <laughs> it seems like, I mean, to me, the last, well, I guess the the book that had the most penetration about success was the book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers. Was there anything particularly about about that approach that you thought, you know what, I, I need to write my own here? Um, I mean, for for me, I wanted to look at like a bunch of different facets of it, and I wanted to deliberately go after those those pithy sayings that everybody loves to throw around that have never really been tested. And I mean, Gladwell's book is phenomenal. And, you know, he's talking about those, those exceptions. And I, I kind of wanted to just look at, it's like, here's the, here's the kind of the rules we grow up with. And are they, are they really true? So you mentioned, you mentioned you've had an interesting career path. I mean, I think the first thing that I learned when I started getting into the idea of what is success, um, someone sat me down and says, well, you've got to decide what success looks like. And that was a week long yeah. pondering because, you know, I couldn't. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that was that was something for me in the book was I didn't want to just write about making money. You know, I wanted to write about a successful life. And so so it's about work life balance and the issue of a personal definition of success, because we we look at the TV and the Internet and you just see 25 year old billionaires and so on. And, you know, those are just you get you're like you're getting examples from a, sa- a sample set of seven point five billion people on the planet. You know, it's like it's not realistic for most people. So you have to you have to find a personal definition. So when you were when you were a kid, Eric, what what did success look like to you? I mean, you know, I probably, you know, like probably like most kids, I had a pretty unrealistic uh, vision of it. I think I was, you know, looking at what I saw on the TV and I wasn't thinking about as much about, you know, happiness and balance and kind of a well-rounded life. And uh, it's definitely changed with time. But um you know, I, I, I knew I wanted to be creative and I knew I wanted to, to kind of do my own thing. And that's why for me, a lot of those maxims of success, they just didn't seem to apply in a lot of cases. Where, where was, uh, your, where was little Eric Barker's childhood? What part of the world was it in? <laughs> uh, I was born in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I grew up in uh, Southern New Jersey, uh, just outside Philadelphia. Then I went to school in Philadelphia so I was in the Philadelphia area for like uh, the first uh, 22 years of my life. So from from what I know from following a band called The Roots and a guy called Billy Joel, um, <laughs> uh, you know, most I know, that's how I mostly know about Philly and New Jersey. Um, 
and Springsteen in a way, uh, very kind of post-industrial, you know, rust yep. belt. We don't quite know where all the jobs have gone. You've got to work hard and get a job for life kind of stuff. Oops, it's not there anymore. Good luck, son. Was it that kind of thing? <laughs> you just summed up uh, all of Bruce Springsteen's songs. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's um, and that that's also where uh, where Rocky Rocky was yeah, filmed. Exactly. Um, you know, kind yeah. of blue collar. Uh, no, very, very much. My dad was a truck driver. Um, you know, so, uh, no, very, very much. That's, uh, that is Philadelphia. So when you're a kid, I mean, did you think your dad was successful? I mean, he had a pretty, he had a pretty, you know, good life. He, he was, he was happy with it, but I knew I want to do something a little bit different. You know, I, I mean, cause for the next, after I graduated college, I went right out to Hollywood. I was a screenwriter for about 10 years and I wrote for Disney or for Fox. And I mean, nobody in my family or anybody I knew had, you know, been to Los Angeles, let alone done anything like that. So I didn't have a roadmap and I didn't know how to, I didn't really know how to navigate that. I kind of just jumped in and it's like, and then I worked in video games and then I, I was doing the blog full time and, and I was writing a book and, and, uh, it was, there was, there wasn't a roadmap. So I'm just trying to get the idea of like, as, as a kid, you know, we try and it's hard to escape really what our, what our parents' uh, lives were, because that's the only model that we've got for a long time. So yeah. when was the first time that you realised that, you know, so this is what my mum and dad do and um, maybe there might be something else? I mean, it was funny because my, my parents were very focused on me going to college. Like nobody in my family had gone to college and my parents were like, you know, go to college, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a banker. Uh, and... And I was kind of focused on that, but then uh, it was over a summer in college. Uh, I went out. To, I had a friend in Hollywood, and I went out to Hollywood for the summer and did some internships. and And it clicked in my head that these movies I loved so much, and all this entertainment that I loved so much, people actually get paid to make that. That can be a living. And because you you know it, you know it like cognitively, theoretically. But I didn't grow up with anybody who did that. So it didn't seem like a realistic option until I was there and I saw, no, you, you, you can make a living at this. And then it kind of clicked and I like raced home, finished up my last year of college in a semester and immediately moved out. What, what's that conversation look like with your folks? I mean, your folks, obviously, it sounds to me like they sacrificed a bit to make sure you could get that education. What does that conversation yeah. look like? Hey, mom and dad, remember that doctor lawyer thing you wanted me to do? I'm going, to, it's hot and sunny every day. <laughs> <laughs> they, my, my parents were, I look back on it now, like at, at the time, you know, I'm 21 and, and, uh, and I, and it was like, Hey, they're cool with it. Wow. And now I look back on it and I'm, and I realize, like you're saying just how much of a, how supportive they were and how, how much of a risk that was. And, you know, and now I'm, I'm, I'm extremely grateful because I've, as at an older age, I have a much better understanding you know, of how much they sacrificed and how much was on the line. But at the time, it was just like, oh, you guys are cool with it? Awesome. Great. Okay. Uh, but now I'm like, wow, that was really, really sweet of him. Because, well, it is a very difficult for a lot of people to, whether they understand it or not, they are somewhat uh, held by their parents' expectations, even into their 20s, well into their 20s, of, you know, yeah. this is what I should be doing. Oh, my mum's going to be upset or my dad's going to be upset if I go and do that. And it is difficult to define, well, I guess, you know, for my generation, certainly, it was difficult to define your own version of success because yeah. it, it involves a completely different 
economic situation in the world than that that your yeah. parents grew up in. Um, yeah. But, you know, for someone who's hoping to find success, you could have chosen a more stable industry to launch yourself into, Eric. Oh, 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 oh <laughs> believe me. I mean, I went to an Ivy League university, so my parents is kind of like, you know, you, you could be doing – you know, whatever you could be on Wall Street, you could, you know, it's so it, it, for them, it was like, you know, you have every option here and you're picking this, you're, you're choosing to jump off this cliff. Um, so no, they were in, incredibly supportive about it. And, and I mean, I had always felt kind of like an alien anyway, like I didn't feel like I really fit in. So for me, taking a big risk didn't feel that big because I didn't, I didn't feel like any of these options really clicked with me until I found this one, but, or that one, but, um, but yeah, they were really cool about it. And, and that only now do I realize just, just how, how far out on a limb they were going. But when it, when it comes to looking for a successful career and again, you know, what is, what is success, putting a roof over your head, putting food in the fridge, yeah. um, having some money left over to maybe put away for a rainy day, yeah. You know, there's careers that aren't the television industry that could probably yeah. provide a more stable version of that. Oh, I mean, like I said, I did it for 10 years, but I'm not doing it now. <laughs> <laughs> so so that that probably says something as well. Um, but, you know, for me, it, it wasn't really about that. Like I I needed to do something that I was yeah. passionate about. Like it, it wasn't the kind of thing where I'm excited. I'm more excited about this. It was kind of like, no. I have to be doing something I'm passionate about. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't not. So so that was the way. Well, and that's something you really hit on because on, on this show, again and again on this show, uh, there's a there's a very common formula of, of how um, time and again the same thing happens. For many people to come on the show, that is that period in their early 20s, and I'm, you know, it happened to me as well, where you're like, Okay, so I'm going to get four hours sleep a night. I'm going to work seven days a week, and I'm never going to see my friends. And I'm going to get it paid. Fuck all. But yeah. I can't not do this. This is all I want to do. And it's like yeah. four to five years of concentrated effort while yeah. you're in that space before your body finally gives in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Was this, you know, what role does that particular period of your life before you have a partner, maybe before you have a family, what role does those those few years, did you find that common as well when you were researching this? I mean, the, that, that was really the issue. Like in the book, I talk about kind of the work-life balance issue and, and it's, it's a tricky one at first for a lot of people because, you know, most of the research, when you look at, you know, extremely successful people, they do, they work nonstop. It's almost like a linear, more, more you work, better you do. Uh, but when they, um, when Nash and Stevenson, two researchers at Harvard looked at the people who had some semblance of work-life balance they didn't go all in in one area like career. They actually broke it up over, there were four metrics they used, happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy. Happiness is do you enjoy what you're doing? Achievement is are you getting ahead? Significance is, is what you're doing providing a benefit to the ones you love. And then legacy is in any small way, are you making the world a better place? And people who had all four were very happy. The people who went the furthest in their career, you know, went all in on achievement. But those were the people who, who, who their relationships didn't work out. They didn't know their kids. They didn't do well in terms of the, in health and and going all in. Yeah, you'll do better, but you know it's it's not all about that. Especially as you especially as you mature. Yeah, sad people fly on private planes too. Oh, yeah. oh and and that's hard to convince a lot of people <laughs> that, that that that's the case. And 
Um, you know, it's, it's uh, a lot of people don't believe that, but, uh, but no, you see a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, unhappy, uh, unhappy, very successful people because I mean, it's not always just sometimes it's, it's an issue of wanting to be successful. And sometimes it's an obsessive drive that isn't very pleasant, but, uh, that, that drives people. It, it ranges. What role does that, I mean, I, I talk a lot on this show about about uh, people who are born with slightly different brains and uh, various yeah. different nuances of what the brain likes to do. Um, in my own case, it is uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. And I remember early on, my doctor said, well, yeah, you've got this thing, but it's partly why you have the career you have, because you've got yeah. this brain that just won't stop. Um, yeah. Does that play a role when you were doing your research for the book? Did the people who had the slightly more obsessional tendencies or certain other kind of quirks of, of uh, mental nuance have an edge over other folks? I mean, that's what's really interesting. Um, the first chapter of the book, I talk about the issue of playing by the rules, you know, like uh, drink your milk, eat your Wheaties, get good grades. And uh, some research uh, by Karen Arnold of Boston College, she looked at valedictorians. So people who did everything right, they got straight A's. And what she found was that, you know, they were good at following rules, but and they did well in life, but they didn't reach the top. And that is partly because of exactly what you're saying, where school, if you're really passionate about math, well, you have to stop studying math to study history and English and get A's in all the other areas. So it, it rewards being a generalist, not a specialist, whereas life rewards being a specialist, not a generalist. So people who are really passionate about one subject and want to devote all their time to it and be the best they can be, they're actually kind of punished by the system because the system says, hey, you got to study history, you got to study English, you know. And so when you look at these passionate people and, and you see across the board, you know, um, you know, attention deficit disorder is strongly correlated with creativity. Um, you see people who are, you know, when you say OCD, you know, Obsessive tendencies, you know, are huge in terms of people who just they bear down on the things that they're interested in with like a religious zeal. And you can't do that if you want to get A's in every subject. You know, having passion doesn't really having passion for one subject doesn't really help you. You know, you need to um, you need to be able to to be able to focus to do really well. And so, again, being obsessive can help you, but it doesn't help you be a valedictorian when it comes to, you know, what is your clear definition of success? That is, I mean, people ask me sometimes, oh, how do I get into radio? Or how do I get into television? Or, I, I just want to, you know, it's like, what, do you want 150,000 Instagram followers? Do you want, you know, what do you, do you want validation? You've got to, you got to jump in. If you're going to drive from Brisbane to, to Melbourne or Brisbane to Sydney or LA to New York, <laughs> you don't just jump in the car and just drive yeah. in any direction. You have a fairly clear idea of where you're going. And if you put the GPS in, it'll take you turn by turn, a thousand different turns, but you'll get there. Um, was there yeah. a was there a common definition of success once you started poking around? I mean, it it varied, it varied, but you know what I consistently saw that kind of became because you know you can you can be a successful you can be a successful uh, investment banker, you can be a successful parent, but the issue that came across consistently was the idea of. Um, there's a lot of research on what are called signature strengths, where it's basically like, what are you uniquely good at? What, what strengths do you have? And across the board, a lot of the research done at the University of Pennsylvania shows that uh, the more you use your signature strengths, not only are you good at your job, because those are things you're strong at, but you're happier, you're more likely to be respected, you feel good about what you're doing. So 
when people don't know what they're particularly good at, you're then you're probably going into an area that maybe you're not as good at. So it's it's knowing yourself, knowing your signature strengths, and knowing another thing that uh, Harvard business professor Gotham Akunda talks about. He talks about intensifiers, kind of like you're saying with the OCD issue, where qualities you may have that on average might be considered bad or negative, but in the right situation, they're actually they can actually be beneficial. So. We could talk about being stubborn. Being stubborn might be bad for your relationships. But if you're an entrepreneur, being stubborn is almost a requirement or you'll give up. So if you know yourself, your intensifiers, your signature strengths, and then you align yourself with an environment that rewards those, that consistently is something you see that produces success in most almost any arena, is finding what makes you special, what you're great at, what brings you joy. And then finding an environment that rewards that. Because if you don't have one or the other, that's when things get really tough. When you were in your writing phase of your career, when you were doing the screenwriting, what does it feel like when you do find that alignment? I mean, well, in Hollywood, it's actually, you know, my experience was it was it's very difficult because, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, I I was I was lucky enough to be working, but you know, you're not always working on projects that you want to be. You're not always doing what you want, as opposed to now with like my blog, my book. These are areas, these are subjects I'm really interested in that I'm passionate about that I've, I've done a lot of work on. So I feel confident in. So for me, it's actually been a really interesting contrast in that, you know, in screenwriting, you're often rewriting projects that aren't very good and you're being asked to make them not very good in another way. <laughs> um, so we, we don't want this kind of bad. We want a different kind of bad. So um, that's hard versus being in having nearly complete creative control, you know, is incredibly rewarding, you know, I mean, financially, but also just, you know, this is what you want to do. You are you are intensely motivated to make this thing the best it can be because it's it's your baby. Yeah, but you've you've put, I'm, I'm guessing, at, at least 10 to 15 years into getting yourself to that situation. What about for people who are listening that maybe they're just starting out on the job market, maybe they've just transitioned from one industry to another, and they're like, look, I'm in this job 45 hours a week just to put food on the table. That's a choice yeah. I have to make right now. How can, they find, how can they find a bit of that alignment in their life? Is it through a hobby? Is it through, through something else? Well, it can it can it can be through a hobby if you're looking outside or, you know, to to look at your role, to have a conversation with your boss, to think about what what particular areas of what you're doing actually leverage your strengths. And can you work on those projects or can you do it in a way that leverages, you know, your unique abilities, your intensifiers? Are there specific situations? Can you talk with your coworkers, your boss and make sure that you're working on projects, roles, duties? that take advantage of what you do. Past that, the other thing that, one of the things I talk about in the book that was really interesting line of research, uh, Peter Sims wrote a book called Little Bets, where he showed that many people, because we everybody's talking about grit now, you know, it's like sticking with goals over the long term, you know, and, and grit's fantastic, and many people struggle with that. But the flip side of that is, um, is what he calls little bets, which is just trying new things making low, low investment, low time, low resources, trying new things and seeing what happens because the world's changing fast. You know, it's like roles are being eliminated. Whole industries are being eliminated. So if you're taking five to 10 percent of your time and trying new things, that's where you're going to find the, the next opportunity, the next possibility. I started my blog basically on a lark. I just thought, hey, here'd be a cool thing to do. 
Well, now it's what I do, you know, full time. So making sure that you're, you're creating opportunities for yourself, you know, that's, that's something that we all need to be doing just a little bit here and there. It's almost like treating, treating your long-term career, like almost like a venture capital firm where it's like, I'm going to try, here's 10, 10 things. Seven of them aren't going to work out. Two of them might be cool. And that one, that's going to, that, that's going to be the next Facebook or Google, you know, where it's like there, you you know, that most things aren't going to pan out, but making an effort to create new opportunities can create a huge payoff in the long term. And, and, and that's the thing that you found uh, to be common in people who did have a successful career is that they were casting that fishing line out. Just a portion of their day was just throwing the bait out and seeing what happened. I mean, tr- you know, trying new skills, learn, learning, learning new stuff. I mean, not just expect, not expecting that you're going to learn all the skills you have or create new opportunities actually on the job. You know, the person that takes, uh, you know, a, a course online at home to learn how to code. But you look across the board and you see something like this consists. Like I said, that's the model by which venture capital works. Um, that's the model by which Chris Rock, you know, de- and most comedians develop their routines is they go to a club and they try, you know, uh, you know, 50 jokes, 40 of them don't work. 10 of them are great. Create 50 more jokes. 40 of them don't work. 10 of them are great. You do that for six months. And that's how you get an hour long HBO special. Let's just laugh after laugh after laugh after laugh. It's not that you just push the first thing you thought of out there. You tried and tested, tried and tested, and you only kept what worked. And so if, if someone is working a 40 hour week and managing a family, how many hours a week do you think is, is, is enough to just kind of put into whatever that, whatever that hustle is, that side hustle? I mean, that's, I mean, depending upon your schedule, it's like, but if you can do 5%, Hey, that's great. If you can take, you know, a few hours, you know, in, in, you know, a few hours in the weekend or an hour, or, you know, half hour each morning, those little bits add up. And, and what really, what really comes down to is when you look at like the issue of grit, sticking with things over the long term, people think of like grit and, and giving stuff up, quitting as these opposites. Well, the truth is strategically quitting things. If you're doing something that isn't paying off, that isn't really benefiting you, a hobby you don't necessarily love, just something that you've been doing, the more things you quit, the more time you have for the things you want to be gritty at. So we, we all, we all kind of waste a lot of time, you know, maybe, you know, maybe with whatever surfing around the internet, whatever we're doing, the more things we quit doing that, the more time we have to spend on the things we want to try or the things we want to devote ourselves to. Eric, those cat videos aren't going to watch themselves. <laughs> someone, someone has got to make sure that if it's if it's if it fits, it sits. I've got to I've got to watch I mean, the cat videos. You 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 YouTube needs you. <laughs> so it's just more Instagram. That's the issue. When I when I look at my battery usage in my phone and see how long I've been keep spending on each app each day, I'm like, I fucking what. 45 minutes, Uh-oh. 45 minutes. <laughs> I encourage people to kind of do it. It's like, you know, to track your time. And the, the thing I say in the book is warning, this is going to be very depressing. <laughs> why, is, why is it important to do things like tracking your time? I mean, because one thing that I found really useful, uh, I actually pulled it from policing, believe it or not. Once they started getting data on where crime occurred in different cities, what they realized was, I believe it was in New York, was they realized that, you know, it's not like, oh, we need police officers all across the city. They realized there were hotspots. There were particular blocks, particular areas that had grossly disproportionate. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. ...amount of crime. And if we just devoted officers to those areas, we could make huge gains by just saying, and I think we all have that where there's pockets of time where we know, oh man, that's when that right after lunch, I'm a little sleepy, I'm a little tired. That's when I waste a lot of time. Or some people are morning people, some people are evening people. That's when I crank and I get stuff done. And once you are really aware of that and you can say, hey, these are the hours when I'm great and I'm like twice as productive to make sure that you're using them for the right thing. And these are the hours where nothing gets done. How can I route around those or go to bed early or, or do whatever? You, once you start to get to know your habits and your patterns, you can start to use them to your advantage. But when you don't really know them, then you can't plan. I, I guess that's, you know, it's a little like keeping a food diary. It's a really frightening yeah. thing to want to write down, yeah. I spent how many minutes playing Tetris in every day? You know, no wonder I haven't got time to finish Twin Peaks. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and the funny thing is, in terms of breaking bad habits, there's research that shows an excellent first step for people to quit smoking is don't 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 limit your cigarettes at all. First step, just count. Just count because of exactly what you're saying. And the same thing was shown with food diaries as well. Just track and you get that reaction where, oh, my God, I can't believe I, I do. And that starts to create the emotional reaction, which produces the motivation to, I got to do something about this. I had no idea. I guess it's that that mindless consumption that you're talking about. How can you change that mindless action into mindful action? And I'm guessing in, in alignment with our conversation about success, it's how do you then create that mindful action in a particular direction? Oh, the Absolutely. There's research uh, by Brian Wansink, who, who it's funny, his book is actually called Mindless Eating. And he, you know, he's done tons, tons of research on eating, which is just fascinating because one of the, his biggest points that he makes is we is most of the time when we eat, it's not because we're hungry. It's not because we're hungry. And one of the most clever research studies I've seen is he uh, he gave he had actually at a lab where people come and look like a restaurant and they have a bowl of soup. And they'd rig the table so that with a tube so that it would re- the soup would refill. And people who had the refillable soup, it's because it's not, oh, I eat until I'm full. If it automatically refilled, they, they ate like two or three times as much so, because it's visually. So it was, an op- it was kind of a, an opaque soup that you couldn't see through. And so they'd take a spoon yeah, yes. and it would replace the liquid. And so they would just keep they eating. Just, a, yep. They would keep yep. eating thinking, I'm going to eat until the bowl's empty. Yeah. <laughs> and. And he did a similar study with chicken wings where people would eat the chicken wings and they would put the, the finished ones to the side or they put the finished ones to the side and they'd be taken away. 
And if they were taken away, people ate more because they couldn't see, oh, I've finished this much. And when I finish that much, it's time to stop. When they had no visual gauge, they just kept going because it wasn't about hunger. And it's like just, just being able to track in your head how much soup, how many wings, how many hours did I spend, how much time I've been screwing around on the internet. Just tracking helps you be more cognizant and make better, more mindful decisions. But the flip side of that is, is once you are, if you are lucky enough to have created a, a career path or um, maybe in that 5% or 10% of your week that you are trying to do the thing that you're really into, yeah. rather than being mindless, those hours, when you're mindful about it, they zip past. It's like you wish you had more time. I mean, and that's that's the tricky part because it's like once we get into the, the you know the that flow state, you don't notice the passing of time. You're you're really enjoying yourself, and that, that's where that's where you got yourself. You know what else? What else can I quit? You're like you're like a junkie. You start selling the furniture in the house. And it's like, what else? What other things can I quit to get more hours? What do I got to do? Uh, in the book, you say you uh, you work through a bunch of these uh, these pithy sayings, and I, I mentioned at the start of our conversation, they're the things that people click on. It's usually written in big bold text over a over a <laughs> over a cloud or a or a, a surfer or someone walking down a pathway. Nice guys finish last. <laughs> And, yeah. and you went and you, you, you looked into the science of it. What did you find with Nice Guys Finished Last? Uh, well, what was really interesting there is uh, Adam Grant at Wharton did some research. And Adam's a really nice guy. And, uh, and he, he broke people up uh, for the research into givers. Those are people altruistically try and help others, don't expect anything in return. Matchers who try to keep an even balance, a give and take. And takers who try to get as much as they can and not give back. And he wanted to study this. So he looked across a number of different careers. And when he initially looked at the results, he saw a disproportionate number of givers were at the bottom of success metrics, which seemed to prove that nice guys finish last. But then he looked at, which was depressing for Adam because he's a very nice guy. <laughs> then he looked at the full results. And what he saw was that it was bimodal, was that a disproportionate were at the bottom and a disproportionate number were at the top. So what you saw was something that intuitively makes sense to all of us. And that is that Yes, some people who are really kind and sweet do get exploited, they do get walked on, they become martyrs. But some people who do a lot of good for others, everybody loves them, everybody feels indebted to them, and everybody goes out of their way to help them. So what you saw was this split where they were at the bottom or the top, and then Adam actually went into some great things that people can do to make sure that they're at that top and not at that bottom. And what, what are those things that you can do? Well, give me some, I mean, I, know, I want people to buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. The, uh, the things were that, I mean, first and foremost, um, looking at the environment you're in. You know, if you're in a place surrounded by takers, you're going to be in real trouble. If, if it's a place where there are other givers, you know, you're looking to help others, others are looking to help you. When givers are surrounded by givers, it's like it's like it's like the, it's like a viral outbreak. But what he also found was that people who are matchers, it's not merely that they want to keep an even balance, but that they have this notion of justice. So matchers don't like to see takers exploit givers. So when givers are in an environment where there are a lot of matchers, matchers tend to protect givers. So looking at the environment you're in, what are these people like? That's really important. The other thing is to make sure you're not overdoing it. What what Adam found was that that basically, I think he was like saying about volunteer work. I mean, there's research that like 100 hours a year, which is like two hours a week, is an optimal amount. When people start to tip over that, they tend to go too far. 
another great tip was he he looked at the research and saw that ch- chunking beats sprinkling. And what that meant is taking a block of time, maybe one day a week, and really going out out of your way to help other people was great. But sprinkling, where you're just constantly fielding requests and trying to help people, that's where that's going to get in your way of your own goals. So looking at the environment you're in, is this a place I want to work for? Are these people all sharks? You know, second of all, making sure you have people around you who are trying to help you out, limiting the number of hours that you're really going out of your way, and then trying to chunk those hours instead of instead of just sprinkling them all over. All those things help people not be martyrs and help to be the successful uh, the successful givers. Now, I, I'm speaking as someone who's always worked outside of the nine to five. I work in radio, I work in television. There's seasonal gigs. Uh, they're sometimes for ten weeks at a time, and then I've got then I've got no job. Um, yep. What about you know people who are founding themselves in a position where you know I broke my balls just to get this gig, and I'm listening to Eric yep. talk, and Eric says, "Look around. I've realised I'm in the shittiest workplace, but." <laughs> I don't know if I can go through hunting for a job again. I'm afraid to, you know, go on the website. Someone might see me checking. Someone might think I'm not happy here. You know, what about people who who might think, oh, geez, I'm stuck in this workplace, even though all these things make sense to me? No, there's some interesting research there too. Robert Axelrod uh, did a lot of research uh, on the prisoner's dilemma. You know, this 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 method to see uh, basically in terms of people trusting one another. And what he found was that basically if even in a place that where there's a lot of not so nice people, if there's a lot of takers, if givers, if the few givers that there are can meet each other, if you're connected, then you can do better because a, a small group of givers can actually have a great effect on one another. But even if there's a fair amount, you talk like a big corporation like IBM or Microsoft where there's 100,000 employees, there might be a lot of givers, but they're all distributed. They don't know each other. That's not a good situation. So basically, you want to find the other people like yourself. You want to make those connections because those people will be able to help and protect one another. So even in an environment with a lot of people who you're not too keen on and you don't trust, if you can make sure to align yourself with the other people like yourself, those people can work to help you, to protect you. So even if you're outnumbered, (laughs) you can do okay if you connect with the other people like yourself. I guess so then, you know, and I'm just speculating, but... Yeah. If you can't find those people, say you do work in a, I don't know, you work at a cafe, you work at a restaurant, and everyone's just kind of shitty, <laughs> but you you don't know if you're going to be able to find another gig, the opportunity cost yeah. of staying in that crappy place of work yeah. over yeah. the long term, I'm guessing, is going to have way more of a detrimental effect on you than trying to yeah. find a place where you are happy to go to. I mean, you know, there, there's some situations that are, are going to be hard. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't I don't dispute that. There's some situations where... For the time being, you know, you may have to you may have to deal with it. You may have to find something meaningful and rewarding in, in what you do. Um, you see a lot of uh, research. Actually, Adam did some of this research as well, where it was in terms of people reframing how they saw their jobs. So there was some fascinating stuff where uh, some of the, uh, the research that Adam did was you have people working on a call center and call, working in a call center is, you know, it can be drudgery. You know, people are hanging up on you. They're not nice to you. And people weren't feeling like they were actually accomplishing anything. They didn't feel like their job made a difference. So what they did was they were working on a call center at a university. And they wanted to have, they wanted the university wanted to motivate the people at the call center. So they brought in one of the students who had received a scholarship 
uh, and managed to go to this fantastic school. And people got to see this is the difference I'm making. And that had a huge effect on the motivation, how people felt about their jobs. There was similar research, I believe it was Amy Rosniewski, um, where they looked at people who had jobs clean, cleaning up in a hospital, you know, like janitorial staff. And the people who were burnt out, who hated their jobs, how did they define their role? They defined their role as, I clean up around the hospital. But there were some people who still found their job meaningful, emptying trash cans, doing things. But they saw their job as, I am contributing to sick people getting better. That's how they saw their role. I am helping unhealthy people get healthy so they can go home to their families. And those people found their job rewarding. Same exact job. But how they saw it in their head made all the difference in terms of whether it was meaningful and rewarding or not. Tell me about another thing that you explored in the book. It's, it's not who you are. It's, it's who you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was really interesting because, you know, there's tons of research that shows that extroverts, uh, one of the most established uh, principles in personality research is that extroverts are happier. In fact, there's even research that shows when introverts pretend to be extroverts, they're happier. And what you saw was in a lot of the research is that uh, extroverts much better at networking, much better connecting with people. But introverts, because they're not spending as much time socializing, are far more likely to be experts in their field. From everybody, from introverts, uh, on average, get better grades, more likely to get PhDs. A disproportionate number of successful athletes uh, are introverts um, because, again, you're going to spend that much time shooting hoops in the batting cage, whatever you're doing. So it was this trade-off. But there were a lot of things that anybody could do to increase their network and get to know people. Because across the board, I even looked at the research on drug dealers. And drug dealers with bigger networks were more likely to make more money and stay out of prison. Networking matters, even if you're breaking the law. And there were some, there were some easy ways. Uh, one, the easiest thing people can do is reconnect with old friends. Because some of the most some of the most well established literature uh, by uh, Granovetter is on like what's called weak ties, and what that means is that you and your friends talk a lot, so you know what they know. So you're not going to hear about really awesome opportunities as often because you guys talk a lot. But if you go one degree out, you talk to your acquaintances or a friend of a friend, that's where you're going to hear about a lot of new stuff. So reaching out to those acquaintances, people you haven't talked to in a while. It's very easy. It's not sleazy because you already know them. They're already friends of yours, but that can create new opportunities. That another great networking tip was basically uh, Brian Uzi's research on super connectors, where basically if you look down your contact list on your smartphone, you'll see that a disproportionate number of the people of you, you know were introduced by a handful of people. There's like a handful of people you know who introduce you to a lot of your friends. Those people are the people worth spending a lot more time on because they're the most networked hubs and reaching out to those people is a great way. So networking benefits everybody, but you know, extroverts naturally better at it. Introverts, they they they're not as good at it, but there are things they can do. But meanwhile, they get the benefit of having more time to develop skills. And where does that? And and where in your um, experience is certainly looking at success? Do you know when it looks to hiring somebody? Uh, certainly in, in the industry of television, I I know. Um, uh, would we hire someone? who is amazing but nobody knows, or we hire someone who's mostly great but is a friend of Jerry? And because, I mean, because they're a friend of Jerry, we're going to get them in. We are going to have to spend more time training them. We are going to have yeah. to spend time training them, but because they're a friend of Jerry and we know Jerry and we like Jerry, um, we'll get them in. 
It's huge. Uh, the, the latter, knowing Jerry is a big deal wherever you are, um, is that uh, one of the biggest principles in terms of people connecting with one another uh, as friends or anything else is similarity. And if you feel you have a connection with someone, you grew up in the same town, you went to the same school, you like the same bands, play the same sport, or you have mutual friends. So one of the things that bonds people together the most is, is any sort of feeling, feeling of similarity. Again, you don't actually have to be similar, but if people feel you are similar, it makes a huge difference. So that that is a big a big issue. And again, that's also why networking does consistently pay off, um, because having people know you, having people feel a similarity with you makes a big difference. You took a very scientific approach to, to writing a book about something that is somewhat arbitrary. Um, why, why did you choose the scientific approach and, and go for cited evidence and, and research and stuff like that? I mean, we've got... We got plenty of books that, you know, are idiosyncratic theories or one person story. And those definitely have useful insights. They can. But I, I wanted to have something grounded because, you know, a few decades ago, getting good information was hard. Uh, now, getting good information is still hard, but we're, we're, it's a needle. It, it went from being a, a trying to get a glass of water in the desert to now it's finding a needle in a haystack. We got so much information on the Internet. But the question is, how much is accurate or legitimate? So my natural instinct was, let's look at academic research that at least has some controls, or let's talk to experts in their field. Like for grit, I talked to Navy SEALs. For, uh, for, for, for dealing with people, I talked to hostage negotiators. You know, people who have real experience in the area, or people who have looked at a big sample size and rigorously studied it. So then at least we get something hopefully approximating the truth or getting close to the truth, because we've all got plenty of answers that uh, a little iffy. So when we started talking, we talked about a clear definition of success. What are some things that might help people? They might not have ever thought about a clear definition of success. Um, mm -hmm. Because you don't know, you've been, you, you just want one day you'll turn around and it's all there and you might feel, yeah. well, I've, I've, I've got a mortgage, I've got a husband, I've got kids. I was supposed to feel happy when I got here, but, but I'm not. Um, how do you help people find their clear definition of success? I mean, for the for the issue of, per, you know, personal definition of success, you know, I'd really say it's like, again, look into your signature strengths. It's kind of like, what are you good at? Because what's interesting is, you know, another pithy maxim we hear is kind of like, do what you love. But the research on that is that what a lot of people want to do is uh, be a celebrity singer, uh, be, a, a, be a professional athlete. And there aren't many of those jobs. So if, if that is your only definition of success is I need to be a multi-platinum uh, singer or I need to, uh, you know, uh, play, you know, professional, uh, professional soccer or professional football, professional baseball. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry if that's if that's how narrow your vision of success is going to be a lot of problems. But there's also a lot of research that shows, again, kind of the signature strengths theory that, you know, following your passion doesn't necessarily make you happy, but doing what you're good at you know, does make you enjoy your job. So when you do things that you are good at, you feel better. Uh, when you try to do things that you, you love but aren't good at, that doesn't often work out as well. So if you start with the things that you are, you are good at, we often tend to come to love those things and we're more successful at them. When we talk about wanting to, you know, think about what we're aiming for, what we're searching for, how important is it to write things like this down? It can really be critical. Because otherwise, 
there's a lot of research that just shows our brain processes things differently when we write things down. Um, some of the most fascinating research in that area is by uh, Jamie Pennebaker at University of Texas at Austin, where you see that basically we, we all have kind of a story of our lives, who we are, an issue of identity, because the brain's operating system is basically stories. But when people write stuff down, when you write about who you are, what you want, what you're dealing with, it forces you to put that into a coherent narrative, as opposed to that monkey mind where, where it's bouncing around our head, it doesn't necessarily make any sense. When you write it down, you have to force yourself to make it coherent. And that actually allows you to look at it rationally, logically, to think it through in a way that your brain ping-pongs around and normally doesn't. So writing down goals, writing down challenges is, makes a huge difference. Things happen, you know. Uh, I was trying to run an ultra marathon, and I was training for it. I was doing heaps of volume. I was going for my, it was my first fifty k. It was a trail marathon. Oh. It was very exciting, and, and then I tore my labrum, and I, I couldn't run anymore. Um, yeah. So I had to adjust my goal. How yeah. can you adjust a goal? How can you adjust the goalposts or adjust the target a little lower without feeling like a failure? It's. You know, that's that's definitely that's definitely a challenge. What's what's interesting is um, there's a little little acronym that's worth uh, remembering called WHOOP. Uh, it's funny, but it's actually useful. Uh, it's Gabriel Ettingen's research from NYU, where she talked about when you have like wishes and dreams and how we actually make those a reality, because our brains aren't very good at distinguishing uh, reality from uh, from fiction, which is why movies are exciting, because we don't just see them as a as a flat screen. Um, is we start with wishing. Well, because our brains aren't good at distinguishing reality from, from fiction, when we wish, it doesn't give us motivation. It actually saps it because our brain thinks we already have it. So whoop is first wishing. But then the second thing you need to do, oh, is looking for the outcome. What is it that you actually want to achieve? You know, a specific grounded thing. And then third, and this is critical, is looking at the outcome. I'm sorry, not the outcome, the obstacle. Because we wish things, but then we don't say, what's in the way? What do I have to overcome? That makes it realistic. And you can start to say, oh, I've got to achieve that. And then finally, P is the plan. So wish, outcome, obstacle, plan. Now, that helps people go from wishing about something and making a plan. But what's really interesting about this research is that when people go through the WHOOP exercise, afterwards, if they feel energized and they're like, oh, I'm going to start this right now. That actually ends up being a litmus test. People who felt energized were more likely to achieve their goals versus people who did the exercise. And then they're like, oh, this seems really hard. I don't know if I can. Those were the goals that weren't realistic. Those were the goals that weren't fulfilling to them. So it actually going through the exercise helped them determine when are my goals not going to work, not going to make me happy, not realistic. And when are they something that I should go at full steam ahead? So when you have to readjust your goals, if you kind of go through that wish, outcome, obstacle, plan, exercise, and you still feel like, oh, this works for me, then it's something worth pursuing. And if you're feeling like, you know, it's not, that's not going to make me happy, then you need to reframe it and start to think about doing the whoop exercise with something that, that might be a better fit, that might actually help you achieve the, the meta goal that you wanted to get to. You mentioned earlier in the conversation that you started the blog as a, as a side thing, as a, as a lark while you were still working yeah. as a screenwriter, and yet it's turned into your full-time gig. How, yeah. what, what does the role of, we've talked a lot about planning, 
and planning out a goal yeah. and, and seeing the action steps you have to take to make that goal, what role does, I'm just going to fucking start it. I don't, I don't even know how to do it, but I'm going to start <laughs> it. What role does oh. that have in success? I mean, again, like the little bets thing where it's just saying, oh, I can't do that. I Just try him, giving it a shot. I'll figure it out. You know, luckily with blogging, I mean, I didn't have a boss. Nobody, there was, there, there was nobody who was going to tell me, oh, you're doing a terrible job. We're taking that away from you. Uh, so I could just do it however I wanted. But giving things a shot, seeing how it works out. Uh, the story I tell in the book related to little bets is of Matthew Polly, who dropped out of Princeton uh, because he, he wanted to be the baddest man in the world. And so uh, he had been the schoolyard punching bag all his life. He wanted to be the baddest man in the world. So he dropped out of Princeton to move to the Shaolin, uh, the Shaolin Monastery and master Kung Fu. And he actually did it for a few years, ended up winning, uh, well, no, coming in second place in a wushu tournament. Uh, he, his parents were furious. But what was funny was rather than just being some crazy thing, it ended up launching his writing career. He wrote a book about it called American Shaolin, uh, The Rights Got Option by 20th Century Fox. He went on to write another book and this crazy, silly little, like just insane thing, dropping out of Princeton to go master Kung Fu, um, crazy. It launched his career as a writer. And so these little goofy things you try and not saying, oh, I can't do that. I give it a shot. You know, like I said, that's my blog. I was just looking interesting stuff on the Internet, started reading scientific studies that are boring as hell. Nobody would want to do that. I picked up the interesting ones put them on my blog and people started looking at it. Who knows? You talked about seeing 25-year-old Instagram billionaires uh, on your on your feed and, uh, sorry, 25-year-old tech billionaires on your feed and and you mentioned that you went to an Ivy League school and, you know, guys you went to school with and girls you went to school with ended up in Wall Street. When you are looking at your own success, how do you insulate yourself from feelings of envy and jealousy of looking to the side and seeing someone younger than you who is looking like they've got shit way more together than you. I mean, I think that's where it comes down to the issue of, of a personal definition of success, where are you kind of taking an idea of success, like right off the rack? Oh, I need to make as much money as possible. Or, oh, I need to have a Ferrari versus saying, what, what really makes me happy? You know, or like, how do I want to spend my time? You know, so it's like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe being a tech billionaire, uh, you know, I'm sure being the billionaire part's fine. But if you're not interested in technology, is that how you want to spend your time? So it's like, how do you want to spend, especially when the future is uncertain, you know, how do you want to spend your time? You know, is it going to make you, you know, X amount or two X or 10 X? But I mean, to some degree, it's, it's how do you want to spend your time? Who do you want to be? Because, you know, a big part of who you are is how you spend your hours. So I, I think once you have a personal definition of success where you say, this is what I like doing, this is who I want to be, this decisions I want to make. And and I'm not just trying to the goal isn't just make the money number go up. Um, that that that's what uh, what uh, uh, I think it was Nash and Stevenson basically referred to as a as a collapsing metric where I'm going to take all of life and collapse it into one metric. So I'm going to make the money number go up. And, you know, that doesn't lead to feelings of happiness or well-roundedness, uh, or at least not for very long. So you've, you've worked for probably a couple of years on getting the book together. You've got the book released. Uh, it, it, the book's out now. People can go buy the book. You're, you're coming to the end of the, the, the touring and the, and the publicity cycle. Do you get that feeling where you're just like a, then alone in your living room and go, oh, what now? Oh, uh, I, absolutely. I mean, where, where I'm, because I'm definitely like, I'm definitely of the obsessive sort. And, um, you know, it's like, 
no, I mean, it's, it is kind of going to be what's, I've, I've already got people writing to me asking, well, when's the next book come out? And I'm like, <laughs> you have no idea you know, what, what it took to, to do this one where, you know, it's like finishing the marathon. Everybody's like, when are you going to run another one right now? Uh, so, so no, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely once, once the, all the publicity stuff, uh, goes on, then I got to think about the next thing, but you know, still doing the blog every week you know, and, and thinking about the next project. But, but, uh, I mean, the trickiest thing for me about writing a book was learning how to write a book because I, I, I've never written a book before and I'm always kind of taking on challenge. I didn't know how to write a blog. You know, I, I, it's like, I'm, I'm usually doing something I don't know how to do. So it's always exciting and always taking years off my life. I, I'm, I'm grateful that we had the chance to chat today and it's particularly today, cause I saw the news today that somewhere, someone, managed to get the green light on Sharknado 5. <laughs> and, I mean, I've written a shitty screenplay. It was terrible. You've probably written heaps that worked. But oh, somewhere, yeah. Oh, yeah. someone is putting their child through school, They're you know, putting, <laughs> putting fuel in their car off the back yep. of riding Sharknado 5. That, Success can hey. come in all shapes and sizes. <laughs> Uh, that that's why I leave the uh, definition a little more vague because we have to leave the Sharknado exceptions in there. We absolutely do. I mean, but you know, to be honest, if I'd only have come up with the Sharknado concept, I would. Be, <laughs> I made a lot of money. That's, so now, now we know your personal definition of success. Uh, it's not Sharknado. No, Octopu <laughs> octopuses. It's octopuses. Okay. It's just okay. like Sharknado, <laughs> but with octopuses. No, I'm joking. Um, Mate, I'm so st I'm so stoked that you uh, you came on and you're 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 a man of your word. You just reached out to me. Um, I'm grateful that we had the chance to have the, have the chat, and I'm super stoked that uh, uh, the people listening to the show are going to get a chance to hear you talk, man. Thank you so much for your time today, Eric. I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. That was Eric Barker. You can find him on Twitter at Barker Desuyo. B-A-K-A-D-E-S-U-Y-O. If you can speak Japanese, could you let me know what that means? That's also his website. Uh, or you can just go Google Eric Barker blog and it'll pop up. Uh, his book is out wherever you can buy books. And books are great. I highly recommend them. If you did like this episode, please consider telling someone about it. If you didn't like this episode, tell me about it. Send Osher email at gmail.com is my email address. I hope you have a great week. Um, I'm thinking of you. Uh, whatever you're doing, I hope it's great. I hope you find happiness in every day that you have this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.